Let's go ahead and pray. Ask God to bless the teaching of his word, bless the offertory, and let's get into the word of God today. So, Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to gather together, to worship you, to lift up our hearts in song, uh, to receive communion this morning, and now to look into your word. We also, Lord, ask that you would be with the gifts, the offerings, the are given here in this place, the provision, Lord, that you have given this church that, Lord, 30 years ago, this coming December, the doors officially opened and you have allowed us to worship in this community as a Calvary Chapel for the past 30 years. And thank you, Lord, for the many people that you've brought through this place. Thank you, Lord, for those who have endured with us and those who are new with us. I pray, Father, that you would bless the work that you've given us to do. Bless us, Lord, with your wisdom. And we thank you, Lord, for the gifts given to this place. Let none be taken for granted. And now, Lord, bless the teaching of your word as we continue to journey through the Gospels. Lord, as we today find ourselves in John chapter 3, Lord, bless this very well-known portion of scripture. Lord, either refresh the information that's found here or Lord, speak new truths to our hearts, perhaps that we've never seen before. May our hearts be open to your spirit's guidance. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I don't know if you guys have been following. This is not the message. One more thing. So Greg Laurie, part of the Calvary Chapel movement, but Harvest Christian Fellowship is the name they've always went by. He wrote a book, I think it was last year or two years ago, called Jesus Revolution. And it was about the early days of the Calvary Chapel movement in the 1960s out in California and how Calvary chapels were birthed and the spiritual revival that God sent upon this land. Something that Greg said this week in a blog, just saying that, what happened then changed the course of our nation. And I believe it. I've always felt that it had. Our nation was heading down a path that was not good during the days of Vietnam War and the hippies and all the things that were going on. And it wasn't just Calvary Chapel. There were several churches. In fact, this church, known then as the Gospel Ranch, was part of the spiritual revival that kind of swept through our nation. And it changed, I believe, the outlook of our nation for decades, and we are in need of such a thing. But they're making a movie out of it right now, and they were filming in Arkansas this week and kind of recreating uh, the Jesus movement and the long-haired hippies and all those things, and uh, they'll be out at Costa Mesa where it took place. So they were in Alabama this week. It didn't happen there, but they'll be out in the physical location uh, next week filming or soon. And uh, that's coming out next year, but something to look forward to. The birth of the Calvary Chapel movement, really highlighting the ministry of Pastor Chuck and Kay, Lonnie Frisbee, Greg Laurie, and his wife, Kathy, and probably others. But Greg wrote the book, so I guess he could write himself into the story, right? Pretty cool, exciting. I just pray that God uses it because we need a similar movement today. So anyways, be praying about that. God's blessing upon it. Some good guys are producing this. Uh, They did, um, I still believe, with Jeremy Camp's story and a few of the other movies that I'm blanking on right now. Because I'm supposed to be teaching from John chapter 3 right now. So we're going to look at John chapter 3. So we're actually continuing a chronological journey through the Gospels. I titled this chapter of our journey for God so loved. And right now we're at the end of the first year, the beginning of the second year of Jesus's ministry, three years of ministry that we historically speak about. And we're kind of at that in-between stage. He hasn't quite made it into the Galilee. He has went to the Galilee. Now he's in Jerusalem and he'll head back up by the middle of John chapter four. He'll officially begin his second year of ministry. It won't say that in John chapter 4, but we combine the Gospels together and we are able to lay out the accounts of Jesus' ministry. But right now, 
that account is being given to us here in John chapter 2. We looked at last week. John chapter 3, we're going to look at 16 verses of John 3 this week. We're going to take a couple of weeks off, deal with Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and then when we come back, we'll be looking at the remainder of John chapter 3 into chapter 4, but continue that chronological journey through the Bible. And here in John chapter 3, the Lord has Nicodemus come and speak with him, the original naked nights as he comes to seek the Lord a man who is a Pharisee a man who was a man of God serving the people of God in his nation in a very high position in his nation but he saw something about Jesus that just had him seek out Jesus so I titled this from the passage itself for God so loved John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, we're going to see today a teacher come from God, verses 1 and 2. You must be born again, verses 3 through 9, the serpent in the wilderness, 10 through 15, and whosoever believes, pulled in a little of the King James there, whosoever, whosoever believes, verse 16, and I'm going to go ahead and just read verses 1 and 2. And we'll get into the teaching of God's word. So there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we read in John chapter 2 verse 23 that during the Passover John 2:23 when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did when they saw the signs the Greek word for signs is simeon and one of the theologians said of this the context of John chapter 2 verse 23 that it wasn't just a sign or a miracle, but this was a sign or signs and miracles of great magnitude. In, in other words, the people were blown away. Nicodemus was blown away. So much so that he sought out Jesus. By this time, Jesus had already cleared the temple once, as we looked at last week, and Jesus was a target of the religious rulers they would eventually want to see him put to death and Nicodemus being part of that sect of the religious rulers knew that his openly coming to Jesus could be dangerous even for his own life and so Nicodemus came to Jesus by night he was a ruler of the Jews as we will learn he was a Pharisee and he was part of the Sanhedrin court as well so the sect of Judaism, being a Pharisee, it was a name that meant the separated ones. And they were largely responsible for the 613 laws that they had added to the Mosaic law. And this is what one of the authors said of the 613 laws. And so we have the Ten Commandments. We know in the Old Testament that other laws were given as well. And so you have the Ten Commandments, but God taught many other things to them. So they compiled all of these laws, 613 laws that's found in the Talmudic tradition or in the Talmud. The laws that were there, one of the theologians said these 613 laws, a number not found in scripture, but were the constitution of Israel. Those statutes were necessary for running a righteous theocratic government under Yahweh. They included laws on how a ruler should conduct himself and statutes govern, governing political interaction with other nations as well as court proceedings and judgments, criminal punishment, citizen behavior, social interaction, and worship. So the Pharisees 
And we learned this in the New Testament, just uh, in the book of Acts, it'll tell us this. They actually believed in predestination. They believed in immortality. They believed in spirits. They believed in angels. The other sect, the Sadducees, did not believe in spirits or angels or immortality. So they're starkly different. But they also believed in works for salvation. And sadly, they misrepresented God's law that they might be justified before the people of God. They were more worried about how they looked in front of the people than actually how they stood before the holy and righteous God who would judge them. Jesus had a few things to say about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. In Matthew 5.20, he would say, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And to the apostles whom he was speaking to at this time, and there in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, and talking to the multitude, they felt that the scribes and Pharisees were blessed by God. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. In Matthew 16, 6, Jesus said, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He warned his disciples, Take heed, beware of the leaven. In the Bible, leaven always representing sin. Beware of that leaven. What does leaven do when it gets, when you're making bread or pizza dough? The leaven, the leavening agent there in the dough causes it to rise. It actually corrupts, causes it to expand. Leaven, sin, a little bit of leaven, leavens the whole lump. So beware of that. Matthew 23, 1 through 3. And the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus said, they sit in Moses' seat. So they have the place, the authority, the position they sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, Jesus said, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. So they taught properly the word of God, but they didn't live the word that they taught to the people. So Jesus encouraged the people, listen to what they teach, but don't, don't follow them. Now, Nicodemus, we will learn in verse 10, was the teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Jews, part of the Sanhedrin court. We'll find that out in John chapter 7. And the Sanhedrin court consisted of the high priest plus 70 members that served as guardian to the temple. Guardians to the temple. And yet they had made the temple a house of merchandise. That's why Jesus cleansed the temple, John 2.16, where he cried out, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. So he contested their authority, their legitimacy. These things and more, they would cause the Sanhedrin court to eventually view Jesus' actions as worthy of death and ultimately condemn him to death that of crucifixion. But Jesus, in his cleansing of the temple, the many miracles that he had done, it caused Nicodemus, a man who had a heart that was soft toward God, to seek out Jesus, to come to Jesus. He came by night. He called Jesus rabbi. He called him a teacher who had come from God. And he acknowledged that no one can do the signs that you have done unless God is with him. So some very positive steps that Nicodemus took. He realized that there was something about Jesus. He sought out Jesus. That's always a good step to investigate, to seek Jesus. He acknowledged Jesus as rabbi. He acknowledged Jesus as teacher. He acknowledged the signs, the miracles that Jesus had done. And in John 5:36, Jesus would testify, I have greater witness than John, speaking of John the Baptist, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And so the miracles, the simeons, these 
miracles with great meaning, Nicodemus knew there was something special about Jesus. Even though the majority of the Sanhedrin court, the majority of the Pharisees, a group that he was, two groups that he was involved with, they looked negatively at Jesus. Nicodemus sought Jesus out. You realize that we all come differently to Jesus. Some will come early in life. Some at some midpoint in their lives. Others will come at the end of their lives. Some will come in good times. Some will come in great times of crisis. But no matter when or how we come, the important thing is that we come to Jesus that we might be saved. Nicodemus's coming to Jesus was an important step of his salvation. We'll follow Nicodemus. From here, John chapter 3, we'll meet him again in John chapter 7. We'll see him again in John chapter 19. And we'll see that he kept taking greater steps of faith until finally he openly, he publicly stood as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So it took him a little while, but he got there. And sometimes that's how it is for us as well. Sometimes it takes us a while. The important thing is that we get there. I was just thinking of this as I was speaking of those words. And when we were, Lily and I and some others from the church, along with a couple other church groups, were in Israel. And we're sitting in the ruins of the synagogue of Capernaum. And Pastor Phil Ballmeyer was teaching. And the Lord just spoke a word concerning my son while I was there in the synagogue. And uh, it was just a blessing because my son wasn't walking with the Lord at the the time. And uh, this was the second time. I don't know if this was the first time the Lord spoke a word to me concerning my son or the second time, but twice he gave a word to me that my son would be redeemed, that he would bring him back. And uh, though he had walked away from the faith, but then the years started going by. And I reminded the Lord of the word that he had given to me. And I said, Lord, I know that you said you will bring him home. You'll bring him back. But please don't wait until he's an old man. (laughs) Sometimes we wait so long that we have so much baggage. Yes, we come to Christ and praise God that you do. But let me encourage you, sooner is better than later when it comes to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Thankfully, at the age of 26, the Lord did redeem my son. And he wasn't an old man, but the Lord brought him sooner rather than later. But realize, I never doubted the word that the Lord gave to me. I was wondering if I was going to be alive to see it at one point, but God is good. He's always good. Just know, if the Lord's working on your heart, sooner is always better than later. Surrender. Take those steps. Nicodemus is taking those initial steps in his relationship with Jesus here. So Jesus, in John 3 and 4, and the Word of God tells us, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And be born. Have you ever had those situations where someone's telling you something and you're hearing what they're saying, but you're kind of receiving it entirely different? It's like they're telling you one thing, but your mind is thinking of something. Wait, how can that even work? And that's what's happening with Nicodemus. He's saying, wait, wait, born again. How can that even work? How can an old man enter into his mother's womb? This doesn't even make sense. Well, Nicodemus was thinking about the physical aspect of this while Jesus was thinking about and talking about the spiritual. To the Jews, to enter the kingdom of God, they did so through the sacrificial offerings and the keeping of the Mosaic law. Today, Jews for Judaism wrongly teaches how Jews can enter into the kingdom of God. I just pulled this from their website. Today, this is how non-believing 
Jews and Jesus Christ. So they're not Messianic Jews. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. How do they get to heaven? This is what Jews for Judaism say. After we die, we are judged by God, since he is the only true judge. Our place in heaven is determined by a merit system based on God's accounting of all of our actions and motives. God also knows if we have repented for transgressions committed during our lifetime and takes this into account. Repentance has always been God's preferred and primary means of obtaining forgiveness. After the temple was destroyed, the repentance aspect of atonement remained intact and sacrifices were replaced by sincere prayer. Sins that were not cleansed prior to death are removed by a process described as shield or Gehenna. Shield, Gehenna for the Catholic Church, purgatory, that all of this, all of what I've just read, it's works for salvation. It all depends on how you do on this earth. And even after you die, if you don't do good enough, you can go into shield, you can go into Gehenna, uh, purgatory, and eventually you'll make it to the kingdom of God. But that line that really stood out to me after the temple was destroyed, the repentance aspect of atonement remained intact. Sacrifices were replaced by sincere prayer. No, sacrifices were replaced by Jesus Christ and his blood that was poured out upon the cross. Sincere prayer is a good thing, but it will not bring you into heaven to stand before a righteous God apart from what the Bible says both in the Old and the New Testament apart from the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin and they have to deal with those verses that tell us even from the Old Testament the Jewish side of our Bible we might say without the shedding of blood how then can they say that sacrifices were replaced by sincere prayer they're missing the blood aspect of atonement. Well, that is because Jesus fulfilled that aspect of atonement once and for all. The Bible teaches that salvation comes through new birth, not by a merit system based on our actions or our motives or our sincere prayers combined with our repentance or time spent in purgatory. None of those things lead us into the kingdom of God, except that we receive Christ as our Savior, His work there upon the cross. The Bible tells us, and we read this in John 1, verses 12 and 13, as many as receive Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believed in His name, who were not born of blood. It's not by inheritance. They were not born of the will of the flesh, not by our personal effort. They were not born by will of man, not by social collaboration. We just can't kind of group together as non-believers and say we're going to storm heaven and we're going to make him accept us. It's not going to work. In fact, we'll discover that we'll be judged one by one. So Nicodemus is thinking physical. Jesus is talking spiritual. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Being born of water speaks of our physical birth. Being born of the Spirit speaks of that spiritual birth. Now think about our physical birth. It was not of our own doing. It was that of our parents, of their own will coming together, brought us forth into this world. So too, our spiritual birth is not of our own doing. It's beyond our doing. It's a gift of God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any one should boast. When God created Adam and Eve, they were created in the image of God. It speaks about the triune makeup that God created us in. And so we are spirit, soul, and body. 
And initially, Adam and Eve were able to have fellowship with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. When Adam and Eve were created before the fall, before sin entered into the world, their spirit connected with God's spirit. Their spirit was uppermost. They had fellowship with God. But as soon as they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, their flesh came into that uppermost position in their lives. They no longer could have fellowship with God. So fellowship with God was broken. In Titus 3, verses 5 and 6, it reminds us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's not by works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It's by his mercy. It's by the work of Jesus. Only through faith in Jesus does our spirit find its rightful position once again, that we can come into fellowship with God as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, our whole spirit, soul, and body comes into fellowship with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said to Nicodemus, verses 7 and 8, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell from where it comes or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born again. And he's talking about spiritual birth. You must be born from above. That word for spirit is pneuma. And in the Greek language, the Koine Greek language that the New Testament was written in, pneuma can either speak of spirit, a breath, or wind. And so you have to always look at the context to see what's being spoken of here. And he, he speaks of the spirit pneuma, but he also speaks of the wind pneuma here in this text. And it's a spiritual birth. The disciples experienced this after Jesus died and resurrected from the grave in John 20, 22, the word of God tells us that Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, the breath, the pneuma. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. They were born again by the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And the Holy Spirit came as the breath of Jesus came upon their lives. They came into that place of new birth at that moment because Prior to that, even though the disciples had walked with Jesus for three years, he had not yet paid the price of their sin. But once he died upon the cross, was buried, and rose again from the grave, the price of our sins had been paid. And therefore, true redemption could come upon their lives. And also we read in Acts 2.2 of the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church, where it tells us suddenly there came a sound from heaven, a rushing and mighty wind that filled the whole house where they were sitting. The Holy Spirit was invisible, that it came in the sense of a rushing mighty wind. And the Holy Spirit was visible in the sense that it came with divided tongues as fire sitting upon each one of them. So they were born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in Acts 2:2, filled with the Spirit, so being born again speaks about our resurrection life, that we've been born that we might walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we were buried with him through the baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. Being born again speaks about a life change. The old man dies, the old woman dies. And we are born to walk in newness of life. It's been a saying that's gone around the church for a lot of years. If you're born once, you will die twice. But if you're born twice, you will die once. Born once physically, you're going to die both physical and spiritual death. But 
if you're born twice, born both physically and spiritually, you'll only die physically because you've been birthed into everlasting life. So Nicodemus questions Jesus, verse 9, says, How can these things be? And Jesus answers, verse 10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? I find it interesting because Nicodemus acknowledged Jesus in verse 2 as a teacher who had come from God. A teacher, didaskalos is the Greek word. Nicodemus just said, you're a teacher, a teacher, come from God. Now Jesus tells Nicodemus, you're the teacher. He puts a definite article in front of didaskalos. It would read, has didaskalos tau Israel. You're the teacher of Israel. You, the teacher of Israel, you don't know these things? It almost gives it the sense that Nicodemus was perhaps one of the, if not the, or one of the main teachers of the people there in Israel. You, the teacher of Israel, do not know these things? He should have known from the scriptures the things concerning the Messiah and God's plan for salvation, but they got it backwards. When the Jews, even to this day, read Isaiah 53, they believe that Isaiah 53 is speaking about the nation of Israel. When a Christian reads today Isaiah 53, we know that it's talking about Jesus Christ. So they had it backwards. And although the religious rulers had been given the responsibility to teach God's law, they had missed the main point of God's law. They missed Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The law and the prophets were preached and tell John, who introduced John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Ezekiel 11, verses 19 and 20. It actually talks about, I believe, the new birth. In the Old Testament, Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20, then I will give them one heart, I will put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh. I will give them a new flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. They shall be my people and I will be their God. So even God in the Old Testament talked about rebirth to the Jews. And Nicodemus just, he's still on the physical. Not connecting the spiritual truths that Jesus is talking to him now. So Jesus continues, verses 11 and 12, Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So Jesus said, verse 11, We speak, we know, we have seen, you have not received our witness. And so I'm just going to run through a couple of possibilities here. Who's Jesus talking about? Some believe that he's talking about the Old Testament prophets, the law and the prophets, combined with the testimony of Jesus, we speak. Others might think that we, John the Baptist and myself, we speak. Or we, the disciples, and I, but the one I like the best, the New King James, the King James Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they all capitalize the words because when they do that, they're saying this is talking about the Trinity. It's talking about the Godhead. We, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, we have testified of these things. The important thing is the new birth that needed to take place, the necessity of spiritual birth. Jesus telling Nicodemus that I'm talking to you at a physical level and you don't even comprehend it. How can I talk to you about heaven? Now, Judaism did talk about rebirth. They believed that rebirth was a metaphor describing a person's 
uh, status, a change in their status. The Talmud would describe a convert to Judaism, someone who is not Jewish, but they convert to Judaism. They describe that as a rebirth. A rebirth occurs, they would say, on a man's wedding day, that when he takes his wife, he becomes like a newborn child. That's what they say. I'm just reading their information. Jewish tradition teaches that when Israel offers sacrifices to God on the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, that God considers it as though he created them anew, a new birth, a rebirth. But Jesus wasn't talking about any of these things. He was talking about regeneration. You must be born again. And so Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, again, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take out the heart of stone of your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and you will keep my judgments and do them. A rebirth. And then Jesus explains how this rebirth will take place. Verses 13 and 15, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is the Son of God who is in heaven, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness. We're going through that portion of the Old Testament right now. We haven't got to this yet. It's actually in the book of Numbers, and we're in Exodus right now. But in the Bible, bronze always speaks about judgment. When you look at the temple, uh, the temple proper had the holy place and the holy of holies, and inside the temple proper, it was made of implements of gold and silver. You had the altar of golden altar of incense and the table of showbread and the menorah all made out of gold. Uh, you had the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat over the Ark of the Covenant overlaid with gold. But outside the temple proper, the bronze altar where they sacrifice the offerings it was made of bronze, the bronze lavere where the priest washed, made of bronze, always speaking about judgment. So the bronze serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the people had been bitten by poisonous snakes. They were dying. And the only thing that would save them was to look at the image of this bronze serpent that Moses set up in the middle of the camp a look of faith toward that serpent, and they were saved. Those who refused to look, they would die. Numbers 21.8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Well, all humanity has been bitten by the serpent there in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned by taking the fruits of the knowledge of Good and evil, eating from that tree, sin came upon this world. We've all been bitten. And it's only by a look of faith to Jesus Christ that we are saved. We want to think that it's by works that we have been saved, but it's not. It's by his work that we are saved. All we need to do to this day is to look to Jesus. Numbers 21.9, so Moses made the bronze serpent. He put it on a pole, and so it was. If the serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And those who look to Jesus in life-saving faith, they are saved. And have you looked to Jesus that you might be saved? So whosoever believes, John 3.16, I'm going to close out in this final verse, just kind of breaking down John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the Bible tells us in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Greek word for love in John 3.16 is agapeo. 
It's a form of agape. We're very familiar with that Greek word for love. Agapeo means to esteem, esteem, to love, indicating a direction of the will or finding one's joy in something or someone. Finding one's joy in something or someone. Agapeo, God so loved the world. God finding his joy in the world. So much so that he sent his only begotten son. It differs from the Greek word phileo, which speaks about a a brotherly love or a kiss of affection would be philema, but agapeo, finding one's joy, one's love in something or someone. God displayed his agapeo, his love toward us by sending his only begotten son to die for our sins. Yet before God ever created the heavens and the earth, did you know that God understood that one day he would have to send Jesus? It wasn't like Adam and Eve messed up in the garden and God had to figure out a plan of redemption. He knew all along. Peter wrote to us in 1 Peter 1.20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last times for you. Even before the foundation of the world, God knew that he would have to send Jesus. In his epistle, in the epistle of 1 John, John describes what true love is all about. Not that we love God, but that God loved us first to be a propitiation, of appeasement for our sins. In 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10, in this is love. The love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into this world that we might live through him. In this is love, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, it's a word that means appeasement, a covering. In the Greek, the word is hilasmas, and it simply means a covering. So you think about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box with four sides, a bottom, and no lid. So it was an open box. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was placed the Ten Commandments, a vase of manna, and the rod of Aaron that budded. Those three things were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And then the covering for the Ark was the mercy seat. That's the hilasmas, the propitiation, the covering. So Jesus becomes that covering for us. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. He gave his only begotten son. And the gift of salvation has been given through Jesus' coming as a babe, but the little lamb of God who grew to be a man, who grew to be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Romans 8.32 said, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God did not spare his only son, but he delivered him up. Now each gift has a recipient in mind. For our family, there's a lot of birthdays in January, February, March, and April. And so we've been buying birthday gifts, presents, a lot of them. April's going to have quite a few for our family. And you think about the gift that you're buying for someone. Each gift that's given has the recipient in mind. Because a gift is given, though, it doesn't mean that the recipient will receive it or open it. Jesus, God so loved the world, the recipient was the world. Therefore, he gave his only begotten son. But whosoever, those within the world who receive Jesus Christ, are those who open the gift. We must believe in Jesus in order to receive the gift of life. 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am chief. Paul writing this. However, for this reason I have obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for eternal life. Paul said, let me, the chief of sinners, be an example to you. If Jesus Christ can save me, he can also save you. That's true for all of us. If Jesus Christ can save me, he can also save you. So whoever believes in him, the Greek word for belief there, we also translate it as faith, is pistuo in the Greek. It means to have faith, to believe, to be persuaded of, to place confidence in, place our confidence in Jesus Christ. As our culture continues to drift further and further away from God's word, as we continue to get bombarded with evolutionary thinking from grade school to high school, from colleges to universities, from all the various forms of media today, we find that belief in God is declining at an unprecedented rate. I once remember telling a friend, and this was an erroneous statement that I made, but I re- told him once, if our reward for following Christ is only limited to this lifetime only, it would be well worth it. But I was wrong to even say that. I was trying to say that life is good with Jesus. And it can be. Sometimes life can be tough with Jesus. And it can be. We go through tough times, right? But I was wrong in saying that because 1 Corinthians 15 19 says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. If we hope in Christ only in this life, then we should be pitied. But our hope is not only for this life, it's for eternal life as well. John 3:16, whosoever believes will be saved. John 17:3 says, in this is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that we would know God and his son, Jesus Christ. The late Dr. Henry Morris of the Institute for Creation Research said of John 3.16, this verse, of course, is the most magnificent verse of all of the gospel. Many would call it the greatest verse in the Bible. It assures us that if we simply put our trust in our God, our great creator who has become a man in order to die for our sins and then to defeat death and to become our savior, our sins will be forgiven and we shall live forever with him. If we simply put our trust in our great creator who became man, in order to die for our sins. Have you believed in God's greatest gift given to us? Have you believed in Jesus? John 3.16, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus acknowledged that the things that he had seen Jesus do, no man can do the things that you do unless you have come from God. The words, he called him teacher, Didaskalos in the Greek, he heard the words that Jesus spoke. He said, it's obvious that you have come from God. And yet Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, he did not know or understand what true salvation was all about. Jesus taught Nicodemus about the need for two births that we are all born into this world physically, but there must be a rebirth. There must be a, a spiritual birth. We must be born again. When I was in my early 20s, my soul was in a state of flux. I just had no surety of salvation. I struggled to believe even though I believed. Has anybody ever kind of relate to that statement. 
I struggled to believe even though I believed. I was in a state of flux. And it went on for two years. For two years, I continued doing the things that I should do. For two years, I continued to go to church. I served in the church. I taught Sunday school. I taught training union. My dad asked me to fill in to preach, which my first opportunity of preaching was my dad going on vacation. And it's like, hey, Johnny, would you like to preach for me? Uh, Yeah, I guess. I think I was 23 at that time. Dad was grooming me, even though he wasn't telling me that he was grooming me for a future work that God was going to do. But I was struggling. And the Lord spoke to me one day, coming from the basement of the church, going upstairs into the sanctuary. I mean, I had one foot on one step, one foot on the other step, and the Lord just spoke to my heart. And it's as if he said these words to me, John, have you not done what I asked you to do? And I repeated back John 3.16 to Jesus. In case you don't know the scripture, Jesus, I got it memorized. I said, yes, Lord. The Bible says, for God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. I believe this, Lord. And then I simply heard Jesus say, okay, then. And I found rest for my soul. I understood at that moment that I'd been saved when I was seven, when I first accepted Jesus as my Savior. I was just struggling for a few years. My soul was in a state of flux. I just was in a place where my spirit was struggling. But on that day, after seeking the Lord for two years, the Lord gave me rest for my soul that I've never questioned since. And if you haven't noticed, I'm not in my early 20s anymore. A couple of years beyond that. Have you found that rest for your soul that your soul actually longs for? You can, but it's only through Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd be with us now as we take one last song to wait upon you. Lord, if there is someone here, Lord, that they're absent that rest Lord, may you give them that rest today. Maybe they've been struggling for a few years, like I had once. Would you give them that rest for that individual or individuals today? Give them courage to just call out to you, to cry out to you. Speak to their hearts. Give rest to their souls. For those, Lord, who have never received you as Savior, may today be their day of salvation. As Pastor Kevin comes down front to pray with those who might come forward as we sing this last song, as maybe those come just to kneel and pray in the front of the church. However you choose to work, Lord, we ask that you would work this hour, work in our hearts. For we all know, Lord, John 3.16. But do we all live John 3.16? I pray that we can say we do having put our trust in you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.